Well, this morning we're going to pick up where we left off uh, in Hebrews chapter 13 by looking at verses 18 and 19. Uh, Last time we saw how the preacher is just finishing up this section on what we've called living a liturgical life. And we've been using that word liturgy, which is a word that translates uh, the, the Greek word uh, that very, is very closely resembling that in, in the text here, that just means to live a life of service before God. So the preacher to, he, to the Hebrews has been speaking about all the glories of what Christ has accomplished, and now he's calling this congregation to respond with this life of worship, with a life that honors God through Jesus Christ because of all that's been done for them by Jesus Christ. And so he's uh, spoken to them about a number of different ways they do this, uh, not least of all, Uh, when it comes to how they relate to church leadership. Uh, So he's referenced things like marriage and sexual fidelity and money and loving others, all these other things. And then he's also come to speak about how they are to interact uh, with those who have led the church historically, like in verse 7, we read about how they're uh, to have this certain response to those who faithfully led the church historically. And then last week, like we saw beginning in verse 17, he's now speaking to current leadership. And how the posture of this congregation uh, can be uh, offered in such a way that it reflects uh, a faithful uh, engagement with the current leadership of the local church. And so we, we started that last week noting that, that he's, he's making this main point that these, these folks are to follow their leaders in a trusting way, yielding to the gospel direction that they, that they give uh, for living out a life of discipleship under Christ. And so that's what we looked at in verse 17 last time. And uh, now we're going to continue in verses 18 and 19 to think about how we relate to current leadership in the church, but, but the focus shifts here uh, specifically to the subject of prayer, so the place of prayer as it relates to our congregational life and the presence of, of local leadership, how that uh, relates to, to, to one another. Um, And we're going to actually get to studying that specific subject matter here in just a few minutes. But before we get further in the text on that particular point, um, these next verses, they actually uh, require us to also take a moment and understand something that's, in one sense, fairly disconnected entirely. uh, but, but, But it helps us make sense of the book of Hebrews. These verses require that we say something about the, the literary style of the book of Hebrews. So, so if you like, we can really think about uh, this as, a, as, a, as just a, an educational aside. Uh, it's, it's important as we work through the books of, of Scripture on a regular basis in an expository kind of ministry where we're going through a book and understanding it. It's important that we take the time uh, to, to, to know it thoroughly. That's part of the goal of expository preaching is working through a book section by section, verse by verse, so that at the end of the day uh, we have like what Sinclair Ferguson calls uh, Velcro strips to attach our thinking to so we can understand the Bible as we go along. And one thing we need to be able to attach our understanding to in the book of Hebrews is how we've related to the author of Hebrews, who is himself unknown. Uh, We know because of the the pronouns used in Hebrews that it is a man who wrote the letter, but we don't know who it is. There's a lot of theories around who it could be. At the end of the day, uh, we can't know for sure, but we have been referring to him as the preacher. So the preacher of Hebrews. Now, We get that in our mind, and then we get into verses 19, and then into verse 22, and you might start thinking that maybe I've led you astray in referring to this individual as the preacher of Hebrews just because of what we read in these two verses. Um, So so I'm going to do a little work here just to explain how we think about the the literary genre of Hebrews, and especially how that relates to our our understanding of the authorship. 
um, which again, this is a little different than we normally do, but I'll take just a few minutes on this just so we can understand how the, how the book is put together. So, so if you look at verse 19, um, and then again into verse 22, which we won't get to this morning, but, but we'll reference it here for a moment, um, we do seem to have a problem because in verse 19, rather than having a present preacher as the author of Hebrews, it very much sounds like we have an absent writer. Uh, the, the prayer request of verse 19 is that the preacher would be restored to these believers very soon. So apparently he's not with them. How, how, how can you have a preacher if he's not there? And then if you look into verse 22, we have the phrase, I urge you to bear with this exhortation for I have what? I have written to you briefly. Written to you. That, that word translated written is that Greek word epistello, which is the common Greek verb that means to give instruction in written form. It's why we refer to the letters of the New Testament as the epistles in the New Testament. It's instruction in written form. So, so we put this together and put together that, that, that the preacher is asking for these individuals to pray that he could be restored to them soon. He wants to be back with them, so he's absent. Combine all that with the fact that this is described as written instruction here, the book of Hebrews, and you have to ask the question, why in the world have we been referring to the author of Hebrews as the preacher all this time? Why, why have we been speaking in that kind of way? And based on these verses, that's a good question to ask. Uh, we, we, want to be careful, we want to be people who are carefully reading our Bibles and listening to the Bible being taught well. In other words, if you're sitting out and we're studying the Bible together and you're coming to this section, it should run through your minds. As Jared's taught us the book of Hebrews, he's continually referring to the preacher, but here he seems like he's a writer. That's something that should legitimately go through your minds as we're studying. And so we need to, we need to speak about this just as a matter of, of training ourselves as good readers of the Bible. This is an opportunity to have, a, to have a, a moment to work some of this out. So, I'll explain to you why he's the preacher. First of all, we, we, we have to say that clearly Hebrews is a written letter. Obviously, there's no way around that because here we have it in our Bibles written down, just like we have Paul's letter to Timothy or James's letter to disperse believers. Here we have Hebrews in written form. However, before this was circulated through the church and then eventually included in the Scriptures as a letter, we can with confidence say that it was first of all a preached sermon, and there are a number of different indicators uh, to, to show us that that's the case. And I'm not going to go through all of them, but I'm just going to give you a few based on the, the text of Hebrews itself. In other words, with, with some reading and just a little study, this is something that can be plain as we dig into it just with the, the text that, that's there for us. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to give you a few of these just to think through. Uh, first of all, in Hebrews, we have uh, no typical introduction like we, we would normally have in the letter-writing genre of this time which you know just from a, a cursory reading. For example, Paul writes his letter to the Philippians, and he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. So he introduces he and Timothy, the authors, and then he says, to the saints in, in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. That's standard letter writing form of the day. Peter starts the same way. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion. There's an author and there's an audience. It's a typical way of, of, of addressing a letter. They would have got a, an A in freshman grammar class uh, during this time. But... Uh, we don't have that kind of form at the beginning of Hebrews. Hebrews begins, and it begins powerfully, but it just starts. Long ago, right, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son. That's it. That's the beginning. So, so, so there's no regular letter introduction. Uh, we don't know what's going on here. We don't know who this is from. We don't know who this is to. There, there's no word about that at all. There's just this really, really, really big Jesus. 
Right? It's not a letter-writing style. So, so there's that. Okay? Secondly, throughout the book of Hebrews, when the preacher addresses the church, he sounds like he's speaking and not writing. So, for example, in chapter 2, verse 5, we read the statement, the word came, then the preacher says, about which we are speaking. We're speaking about the gospel here, he's saying to them. Not writing about the gospel. Or in verse 5, verse 11, the preacher, or chapter 5, verse 11, the preacher refers to the audience as reluctant listeners. These Christians are, are reluctant listeners, not reluctant readers. Right? Chapter 6, he says, even though we speak like this. Again, there's this reference to, to, to verbal oration there. And then there are a whole bunch of other examples like that all throughout the book. That the preacher isn't addressing this audience in a way that you would in writing. Instead, he's addressing them as a gathered group who's listening. And along with that, he's actually referring to himself as the one who's verbally speaking. It's just the language he's using all throughout. And then, and this one's interesting, it's a little more down in the text, but, but it, we have this statement in chapter 13, verse 22, which I already read for you, uh, where, where it says, Brothers and sisters, I urge you to receive this message of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. So we have that. But with that, he uses this phrase, message of exhortation. And, and in other writing during this time, that phrase almost became a, a technically uh, attached phrase to describe the homily or the sermon time in local synagogue worship. It was the preaching in local synagogue worship, and we remember the Jewish background of these, of these believers. So, so, so it's like he's referring to the time in our service where we would say we have the sermon now. That, that message of exhortation is a technical term for that. And, and, there, and there's more we could say along these lines, but there are a number of these different clues. In fact, in, in, in formal scholarship, there are about six major elements in Hebrews that point to the fact that it was first a sermon. Now, the three I gave you are just the most, the most obvious ones. They're plain in the text themselves as we, as we study them a little bit. But then that does leave us with the question, why does the preacher end Hebrews by saying he's written to them and refer to the fact that he's absent from them? We still have to deal with that. And then we can sort that out as well, because, because first of all, sermons in the early church were often written out before they were delivered. We have a great deal of scholarly evidence about that, much like sermons are written out today. I write, I write my sermons out on a weekly basis. It's typical practice in preaching to do that. It's always been that way. So sermons were written out. And secondly, in the first century uh, Greco-Roman world, Christian gatherings were often, though not exclusively, but they were often in people's homes. So, so in other words, for example, in the city of Rome, there may be a large Christian group in the city of Rome, but they regularly met in a number of what we would call house churches for their weekly worship. So, so for example, Paul in Romans 16, he passes on his greeting to the church that meets in Priscilla and Aquila's home. And, and especially given the context of Hebrews where the believers uh, were having their property confiscated, remember those kinds of things we read about back in chapter 10, it's very likely that this church would have met in multiple homes that the preacher is addressing here because using different homes uh, for meeting like that, especially during times of persecution, was a way that the church avoided uh, conflict with authorities. So, so we can start putting all this together and, and making sense of, of what's going on. The preacher here most likely addressed one house church with this sermon in person. Maybe a couple house churches with this sermon in person. He came and he preached. 
And then as he went on his missionary way, wherever his travels were taking him, he left the manuscript to be copied and passed around to other house churches in that larger Christian community. And he did this after adding his little additional note about his writing to, to them at the end of this sermon manuscript. Even there where he puts the things together, there's this sermon language and writing language put together. Even so, his original audience would have recognized, okay, uh, we're, getting, we're getting a published sermon here. This, this is what's going on. So, so in effect, what we have is something like first century podcasting. The sermon is written, the sermon is preached, and then it's cleaned up a bit, just as those people do who publish their their sermons then in written form. It's cleaned up a bit, this final greeting is added, and then it's circulated among other Christian believers. So so I I tell you all that, just to exercise our minds a bit in the discipline of reading our Bibles. Well, And I tell you all that also, uh, just because I feel a responsibility under the Word of God as as we're speaking about an accurate description of our speaker here, the preacher here, we need to understand why we're coming and using terms like that. And were you sitting there and I said nothing about that, you would start to think I might not be studying my Bible very well. And I want you to know I'm studying my Bible. We have to be able to put these things together. In, In addition, nuances like authorship and genre and things like that can become a very uh, difficult spot for some in terms of believing the scriptures. So, so in, in some cases, things like this can be used to undermine the authority of scripture. Like, you know, maybe Hebrews was put together by a bunch of different people. Uh, so, some, somebody thought they were speaking. Then by the end, you've got somebody tacking on some stuff about writing. You know, you can't really uh, trust the scriptures because they, even in one book, it doesn't even seem to agree with itself. You've got preaching and you've got writing all smushed together. And, and somebody can use that to undermine a trust in the, in the authority of scripture. But, but we know if we study this out well, if we think well on these kinds of things, uh, we're able to reach uh, proper conclusions. So, so I just I give you that uh, just to exercise your thinking a little bit along those lines this morning, and uh, and 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 that's just what it is. Now, we'll still make lunch. Don't worry. That doesn't count towards that. That counts towards our time. Um, but but now that we have that sorted, we need to shift gears. If we were if we were in our sophomore English class, you'd get a five minute break to go get some water or whatever. We don't have that. Uh, but you can take a drink of coffee, and we've got to shift gears now. Back to the subject of leadership in the local church and praying for them. So I'll give you a minute just to, okay, file that. Now we're going this direction. Two totally different directions. An F in preaching class is what you would get for doing something like this, but we're doing it anyway. All right. So liturgical life, that's what we've been talking about, and current church leadership. How do we relate to current church leadership? So, so, so our life of worship, which is made possible by Christ, uh, who purifies us completely before God, this includes... Uh, our posture toward leadership in the church. And here, that expresses itself in a particular directive centered on praying for leaders. And, and, and we know God is a God of means. Just anytime we think about prayer, we always want to bring this to mind. We know God is a God of means. Just like He used that, that strong wind, you remember in the Exodus narrative, to move the water back so that the people of Israel could cross on dry land. The God who speaks and all of creation comes into existence still chooses to use a strong wind blowing all night long to part those waters. He's a God of means. So oftentimes He works that way. And one of the means he works through is prayer in the life of his his people. Prayer is efficacious in that God has determined to work through the prayers of his people to bring about his purposes in the world. And so here we have this exhortation to prayer. And anytime we think about prayer, we we need to be remembering that. This is a means that God has determined to use to bring about his purposes. And, and, and then also, when we bring up prayer, we do recognize that it's a, it's a bit of an interesting subject in, in that, um, at least if you're like me, and it would make me feel better if you were, 
uh, one of the first things that comes to mind when we discuss the topic of prayer is that I wish I spent more time in prayer. Uh, we know prayer is important. We know it's a critical piece of the Christian life. In fact, it was the Scottish minister, Robert Murray McShane, who, who said, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is and no more. Prayer is a vital expression of our genuine faith. But a praying life can also seem a bit elusive. And in fact, the preacher has addressed the spiritual laziness of this congregation. Remember back at the end of chapter 5. And in my own life, I'll just speak for myself, in my own life, when spiritual laziness sets in, one of the first areas it expresses itself is in relaxation of my habits around prayer. It's just what it is. Prayer is a a kind of barometer that actually becomes important to read for my own spiritual condition. A diminished prayer life often indicates a general relaxation and zeal for following Jesus. They're just put together. So, So in a sense, with this call to prayer, the preacher is giving these believers some lab time to practice the lecture. They've been struggling with laziness in terms of following Christ. And what better way to renew their own practice of faithfulness than for a call to prayer, uh, be it attached to leaders as it is in this way. Uh, but this call to prayer is a reflection of the fact that there's work to be done, he's telling them. Here's how we, how shall we come along and continue to follow Christ with that gospel kind of energy. Um, and, so, and so that call to prayer, it's there for us reflecting uh, possibly the needs of these believers to, uh, to be persevering. And then along with that, it also demonstrates something very wonderful and encouraging about the preacher's own humility as a leader. Uh, we're going to talk about this a little bit more, but he's clearly here confessing his need for the prayerful support of God's people. So, so, so prayer for current leadership, it's a vital subject for us to think about, not just as a matter of, of the need uh, reflected in pastors, so we as pastors need the prayers of the people, obviously, but it's also an expression of our own lives as, the, as it's lived out in a vibrant kind of faith. Um, prayer, is, prayer is indicative of that kind of, that kind of health, spiritually speaking. And so we'll see how these things come together a little bit more as we, as we work through this. Um, but let's, let's start in on verse 18, if you look at the text. And, and, we'll, and we'll think about the first part of verse 18 under the heading, uh, the congregational responsibility to pray. The congregational responsibility to pray. So verse 18 begins uh, with a short but, but critical directive there. It's an imperative. It's a command. Uh, pray for us. That's what he says. Pray for us. Uh, the us here uh, no doubt refers to both the preacher and the local leadership that he's just been speaking about in the previous verses. Uh, so, so pray for us, pray for your church leadership. And as we think about this statement, there, there is something wonderfully encouraging about this exhortation, and it's centered on the fact that while the preacher has been ministering to this congregation through his teaching, he's now calling on the congregation to minister to him and other leaders in their praying. You see, so, so it's not just that this congregation is called to, to yield to current leadership, for example, like we read in verse 17, but they're also called to exercise a life of service to God by ministering to current leadership. It's, it's a wonderful a symbiotic relationship that's reflected there. Uh, oftentimes, categories of ministry, not least of all prayer, they can be thought of in, in particularly, um, I don't know, another way to say it, professional ways, in, in siloed kind of ways. So, so we might hear something like, you know, the pastors in the church, they have the spiritual work to do. Our job is, is you know, maybe to fill in a few gaps here and there, volunteer for this or that, and, and, and maybe bring a meal or help with setup or, or these different kinds of things. Uh, but, but, you know, this, the spiritual side of things, that's really more the pastor's business. 
um, at least, you know, prayer, that's, that's, that's a specific portion of the pastor's job, which it is, which it is, but it can be thought of in those kind of professional terms. The, the pastor's ministry is to be about prayer in a special or, or, or uh, just as you hear people speak about, even a kind of magical sort of way. It's different from the rest of us. You know, in fact, it's interesting, this group, I've told you about them before, they're nine lovely guys, I love hanging out with them, who, who I've done these motorcycle trips with in the summer, they're all believers, but, but uh, when it comes to, to praying for a meal, or maybe they'll, we'll pray before we leave on the, the morning for the next leg of the motorcycle ride or whatever it is, every single time they always will say something like, like you know, you, Jared, Jared, you're the professional, why don't you pray for us? And I had to tell them last time to stop doing that. Like, you're the professional, why don't you pray for the meal? We've got a professional here. They'll say things like that. And, 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 and they're joking halfway, but they're not all the way because then they expect me to pray. Right? As if prayer is somehow more special because a pastor does it. Right? But, but that's not the case. In fact, here, prayer is precisely a ministry that is engaged in by the people for the pastor. Right? Pray for us. So, so this is a directive instructing the people of the church to go before God with a humble heart and make requests on behalf of the leadership of the church. Oh God, help them. Help them. And again, it's worth saying, this subject of prayer, it can be, it can be a very strained area for us. It, it can feel like it's, it's better for others to do it than for us to do it because we can feel weak in prayer. We can feel guilty over our lack of prayer. We can be bogged down by a sense of inability, uh, not knowing how to pray the right way or say the right things. That there's, there's the tangly sin that makes us almost feel guilty in such a way that we, we don't really want to come before God in prayer. The words are mumbled. My mind's distracted. The spiritual vibrancy just isn't there like I wish it was or maybe like it used to be. And so I'm, I'm discouraged in prayer. It's very easy to get to these places. And what's good for us to remind ourselves of here is that the preacher is not calling the people to do something that they're not able to do in their weakness. But instead, he's calling them to do something that Jesus ultimately provides for them in his supremacy. This is a subject that the preacher has already addressed. If you remember back in chapter 4, the great truth that's there is that it's Jesus who opens up this new and living way for us to come before the throne of God in prayer and find the timely grace and mercy that we need. Our motivation for praying is not attached to the particular spiritual vibrancy or lack thereof we may feel. That's not our motivation for praying. Our motivation for, for calling out to God isn't even based on how well we held things together in a, in a, in a, kind, of, in a kind of moral supremacy during the week. I wasn't grumpy. I was, I was on it like I needed to be and I did my, my 37 and a half minutes of Bible reading each day and all of those kinds. So now I'm ready to pray. No. No. Our motivation for praying is that like Hebrews 4 tells us, through Jesus, we now have a living way open to the throne of God himself. For, for, for all who trust in him, Jesus, through his death on the cross, he's purified us, fitting us properly for the presence of God. Christ has done that for us. He's the one who brings us there. Our prayerful effectiveness isn't sourced in how good we, we think we are at praying or anything like that. Our prayerful effectiveness is sourced in Jesus Christ and the provision that He's made. There's a, there's a wonderful book. I, I can't recommend the book highly enough. If you haven't read it, you need to read it. Read it. It's a book by Tim Chester. In fact, I think Tim Chester was the one who did our uh, Exodus Bible study that we did a, a couple, I don't even know, time is a mush now. Was it two years ago? It was a while ago. Uh, but but he's, he's very helpful in his instruction. Anyway, he's wrote, written this book called You Can Pray. And he makes a comment along these lines. So, so he's referencing 
the, the fact that we can feel weak and unworthy and even um, guilty, not sure what to say in prayer. All those different kinds of things enter our head as we pray. But listen to what he says here as he reflects on, on Hebrews 4. He says, all, all of this may be true. In, in other words, all of these feelings of, of inadequacy, distraction, all of these things, all of this may be true, but it is not the whole truth or even the main truth. This is what is really happening in the moment of prayer, he says. The Lord of the universe looked on you and saw his child. He thought of his son. He remembered his death. And so he welcomed you into his presence. You may have been sitting on your sofa, but as you prayed, you stepped into the courts of heaven to stand before the Ancient of Days. You may have felt your sin, but the Father saw only the righteousness of His Son. You may have felt the inadequacy of your prayers, but in your faltering words were purged by the blood of Jesus' Son. All your confused and selfish motives were purged by the blood of Jesus so that your prayers were transfigured into the most beautiful liturgy. What an outstanding statement. What an outstanding summary of the sufficiency of everything that Hebrews has been telling us about Christ. Jesus does what? He cleanses us. He's the one who makes us clean before God, which has implications for all eternity. He's the one who's paid for our sin and rebellion against God in such a way that we're now reconciled to Him forever as we're trusting in Jesus. There's nothing that can separate us from that love for all eternity. And that also has implications for the now in the fact that as we come before God in, in prayer, we are coming into the presence of God as it were now through Jesus' priestly high work as He not only makes that way but purifies us for that kind of ministry. And so the preacher of Hebrews, he's capitalizing on all that instruction that he's just been ministering to these people with, all that truth about Jesus. He's exercised ministry toward them in his teaching about the sufficiency of Jesus and all that Christ has accomplished, even in his own praying for them. We'll see in the final benediction next week, he's ministering to them, but he's exercised ministry toward them, speaking about the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ, and now he requests ministry from them based on that same sufficient Jesus. Pray for us, he's saying. Capitalize on the enormous truth that's there for us in Christ and apply that now to us in your ministry toward us. Come before the throne of grace on our behalf, he's saying, because you have Jesus and we as church leaders, we need you to prayerfully appeal to God for grace for us. And so this is such a, a critical part of our ministry life together, both as people and pastors. Our, our ministry is symbiotic ministry in this way. Pastors don't exist in a professional realm removed from ministry need themselves. Pastors fulfill a unique role in the church, to be sure, but, but they need ministry, not least of all prayer. So this is actually just a very simple point of application we can make, make from this. Pray for us. Pray for Jason. Pray for Josh. Pray for me. Pray for our families. Pray for other leaders you know. We know leaders in the church around us. We have Jeff Lassine down the street at Selwood Church this morning preaching. Thomas Terry over at Trinity. Brian Buck at Oaks Parish. Uh, Brian Winchester at Saving Grace. Patrick Grant at Woodstock Community Church. Pray for those in positions of church leadership, recognizing that, that this praying is ministry that Christ has purified you for and is ministry that pastors need. God is a God of means. Which brings us to the second part here, where the preacher moves from calling this congregation to exercise their responsibility in prayer to, to where he now speaks about what their priorities can be in prayer, which is helpful next. Um, because as we, as we take the regular time before God to pray for leadership in the church, when we pray, how shall we pray? What, what, what do we pray for? 
But what the preacher hears, he speaks to two main priorities in prayer. The first, you see there, is that of honorable conduct. Honorable conduct. The preacher says, pray for us, for we are convinced that we have a clear conscience, wanting to conduct ourselves honorably in everything. So you can hear the priority that's there. That the preacher has a clear conscience about the way he and the other leadership has been ministering to date. But, but, but he's not one to be lazy himself in faithfully following Christ. He's not, he's not relaxed just because, you know, faithfulness has marked the past, so we don't need to really worry about, about engaging in any kind of meaningful stuff in the future. It'll all be fine after all the past was fine. No, instead he asked the church that they would pray for his continual honorable gospel conduct, especially on the part of the leadership there. And, and it is interesting to note that, that earlier in Hebrews, It's Christ who cleanses our conscience. This isn't the first time conscience has come up in Hebrews. Chapter 10, verse 22, we're told that Christ is the one who cleanses our conscience. So, pays for our debt of guilt before God. That's what Jesus does. And at the same time, while our conscience is cleansed by Christ, we do see in this prayerful priority here that a clean conscience is still something to keep on pursuing in our own life of faith. You see, the the preacher's asking for prayer, recognizing that a clean conscience is not just a matter of Jesus' ministry applied to him, but it's also a matter now of his own response as he lives this life of trusting in Jesus. The the conscience, that, that moral center of who we are, is not only made pure by Jesus, but ongoing purity, ongoing holiness in these things is part of our ongoing ambition as servants of Jesus. Which we have in the right order based on the book of Hebrews. Why are we engaged in a life that way? Is it because Christ, you know, He cleansed our conscience six, six and a half years ago, but if we don't keep it together now, we're not really going to be secure before God in the end. Is that why we have to do that? You know, Jesus did a, He kicked us off, you know, in the beginning, and now we've got to make sure to hold it together or else God won't accept it. Is that the message of the book of Hebrews? No. Jesus is the supremely sufficient one who has cleansed us for all eternity, full stop. He is the one who's done the work to safely bring us before God, paying for all our sins. Now, what have we been talking about all through chapter 13? This responsive life of worship. I'm not trying to gain what Christ has already gained for me as I pursue a life with a clean conscience as a gospel minister. I'm seeking to live a life of worship because of what Jesus has done for me. Because of what he's done, we live in this way. And the preacher knows that full well. That's why he's speaking about all this in the context of liturgy. We're worshiping with this. We've been purified by by Christ for this life of praise. And so now that moral center of who he is, he continues to desire that the purity of heart would mark his own ministry in response to what Christ has done eternally and fixed and finally and all that that for him. So, So he appeals to the congregation to prioritize this in their prayers. The leadership, they want to conduct themselves honorably in everything. So so in their personal lives, which are to be an example of holiness and perseverance, trusting in Christ, all of those things, pray for honorable conduct there, he's saying. In their teaching ministry, which is to center on the the supremacy and sufficiency of, of the person of Jesus Christ, and not let anything sneak in there that would take away or try to add to what Jesus has accomplished and who he is. So in their teaching ministry, pray for honorable conduct there. Requests from God that the leaders would would continue in a way that reflects fitting gospel living and ministry. And we we need an exhortation like this so badly. My goodness, we need this very badly as the church. We need churches that are regularly exercising their Christ-bought privilege of prayer that comes through what Jesus has done. They're regularly exercising themselves in petitioning that their pastors would be morally holy. 
There's a lot of talk when a pastor fouls out. There's a lot of talk when a pastor fouls out. Uh, and, and when they foul out, they're absolutely responsible for their failure, no doubt about it, disqualified from ministry. It's damaging when that happens. They are responsible. But it would be interesting, wouldn't it? It'd be interesting to look at faithful pastors versus fouled out pastors. And in comparing the two, it'd be interesting to get a time-lapse video of the throne room of heaven and see how much time their respective congregants came before God pleading for their pastor's holy conduct. I think the results would probably be fairly disturbing because there is no doubt a correlation. Praying congregations and faithful pastors exist so often together. These things are, these things are not disconnected. And, and so again, there's, there's simple application here. Pray for us. <laughs> Just right here for, for Josh and for Jason and for me as we seek to be faithful elders, pray, pray for us. May, may, may we pray like this. May we conduct ourselves honorably in anything. It's actually a really short prayer. Before your first sip of coffee, may Josh, Jared, and Jason conduct themselves honorably in all things for the glory of Christ today and forevermore. Can that please be the case? In Jesus' name, amen. There's the prayer. They need this. They need this. It doesn't take long, but the effect is great and necessary. Faithful pastoral ministry to you is not separated by, from, from a faithful praying ministry by you. Those things are not separated. That's the first priority, honorable conduct. And then there's a second priority. It's the priority of presence. Presence, not Christmas presence but presence, being, being together. You see this in verse 19, where the preacher asked the congregation to pray specifically that he personally... Now, you see how there's a shift there in, 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 from talking about us to now saying I? So, so there's, a, there's a personal shift here where he says, pray that I uh, would be restored to you very soon. Just as an interesting text note, that word translated very soon in, in Greek is the same word John uses to tell us uh, that, that when he and Peter were racing to that tomb on Easter Sunday morning, do you remember that story? That Peter outran him, outran, that's the same word that's, that's used very, uh, very quickly, very soon here. He, Peter moved very, very quickly apparently. Uh, but, but you get the emphatic tone of the preacher's priority here, and that he's not just hoping to see this group at some point along the way in his missionary journeys, but he wants to see this group quickly. He wants to come to them soon. He wants to get there fast. And why is that? Well, be, well, because he knows the truth of what he's been speaking about in Hebrews on a few different occasions. He knows that for his own life of faith, being away from his local church is not a long-term success program. Pray that I'll come quickly. But whatever work he's engaged in, he's longing to be back with presumably this group who is his, his home church of believers. He needs them. And, and when we put these two priorities together, both this honorable conduct piece and this need for the presence of a local church, when we put these two things together, it really gives a good picture of what faithful, enduring leadership needs to look like, uh, just even in terms of the demeanor of leaders. Because oftentimes it's the case, and, and if you've been listening to it, the, this has come up on the Mars Hill story, that podcast that's, that's going on right now. But, but honorable conduct and personal presence with other believers in the life of a pastor, those are vitally connected things. But both these things that the preacher prays for here, perseverance and honorable conduct, it is not separated from a genuine fellowship connection. Because often in leaders who, uh, who, who end up uh, conducting themselves in, in failing ways instead of honorable ways, one thing that starts to happen as you reflect back on the trajectory of things, oftentimes there's been a move further and further and further away from what? 
regular, accountable fellowship. Not being with the people of God, but being locked away. Maybe under the guise of studying, you know. Whatever the reasons might be. But to separate from regular and meaningful fellowship in the body of Christ is always a place of danger. And that's just as true for pastors as it is for other members of the church. And the preacher knows this and it informs his prayer. He's demonstrating great humility here. He's not, he's not a leader who's thinking he's above needing anything from anybody. You know, and he's a leader who knows that while he extends ministry to others, he is also deeply, deeply in need for ministry to be extended to him by others. Please pray that I will perseveringly be faithful and that I can be with you. He knows his own weakness and he knows his own need. He's a minister who knows his need for ministry. Even as you think back on Hebrews, the preacher has shown this posture in, in, in a few different ways. But, but you notice even thinking back through Hebrews, in fact, you could go back and read it in about 22 minutes this week. Go back and read through Hebrews once. So often the preacher says we in his exhortations. Do you notice that in the book? We? Right? He's preaching to himself as he's preaching to the people. He knows he's needy. In fact, all the way back at the beginning of chapter 2, what does he say? It's actually a fairly heavy rebuke, and he includes himself in it. He says, for this reason, we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard, so what? So that we will not drift away. He's not you, you, youing them. He's including himself in this exhortation, even in this rebuke. The preacher knows the best of men are men at best. He knows he's needy, just like the believers that he's preaching to are needy, which is exactly why this exhortation comes. In relating to church leadership, as we live our whole lives in a posture of worship, we must be praying for our leadership. Contrary to personas that, that may communicate something different, here, here's the thing. The pastor's job, the pastor's job is preaching, people, and prayer. That's the pastor's job. If you wonder what, what, what the pastor's job is, that's as basic as it gets. Preaching, people, and prayer. That's the pastor's job. And guess what? The pastor's need is the exact same. Preaching, people, and prayer. The pastor needs to come under the word that he's delivering every Sunday morning in order to be moved by it to repentance, to encouragement, all of these things. He needs to sit under the ministry of the word. In fact, Sinclair Ferguson, again, he was, he was giving a, a conference, doing a Q&A. He's, he's a Scottish minister who's been so helpful to me um, from a distance. I've never met him, but... but um, but he's given a Q&A and somebody was asking all the different guys up on the platform who was the most uh, influential preacher in their life. And, you know, these guys went around and gave the typical wonderful answers. I got to Sinclair. He was so understated, you know, just this understated little, little Scottish guy. And he, and he says, well, well uh, my, my own preaching. I said, under my own preaching. You know, and every, you could just see, what, a, what an arrogant thing to say. And then he went on to explain. He said, as Christian ministers. We need to be under the word that we're preaching on week in and week out basis, just like the people need to be under that word. And that's reflected here in the posture of the writer to the Hebrews. We, we, we. He's sitting under his own ministry of preaching, right? And he's sitting under his own need for the people to engage him in, in congregational life. He wants to be with these people, and he knows he needs prayer. People preaching prayer is the pastor's job. People preaching prayer is the pastor's need. Right? Surprise, surprise, in the family of God, we need each other. So, so, we, so we just put all this together, the liturgical life and current church leadership. What does that look like? Well, among other things, pray for us, for we're convinced that we have a clear conscience. Things are good. 
But we're wanting to conduct ourselves honorably in everything. And I urge you all the more to pray that I may be restored to you very soon. The priority of prayer. May we lead holy lives. And may we be with the people in order that at the end of the day, the ministry of the word of God, according to our specific design as elders in a local church, may go forward in a way that's effective uh, rather than, than any other way which, of which there can be many. And so we need that. And so that's the exhortation this morning. Pray for us. Pray for us. This is a privilege that Jesus himself has bought for you. And it's a privilege that we as pastors need. And again, this is the helpful thing with an expository preaching ministry. It would be weird if I just chose this text to talk to you about us. That would be really strange. It would seem kind of narcissistic. Right? But the, the nice thing about an expository ministry is we're in Hebrews 13, uh, 13 18, and 19 because we were in 17 last week and 16 the week before. And we'll be in 20 next week. And as we go through these things, the Spirit of God uh, brings to mind what's needful for us to continue on in healthy life together, both personally and congregationally, and we're thankful for that. Let's pray. Father, we do uh, come before you and ask as the God who gives, we ask that you would give us the grace we need to persevere, both um, as, as ministers in your congregation, as pastors and as people. Uh, we are deeply, deeply uh, needy in so many ways. And we also recognize that in our deep need, we serve the Christ of even deeper grace, deeper mercy, the one who comes to us and brings us along and restores us and speaks to us through his word. And we ask this morning that we would be uh, the persevering kind of people you've called us to be because of what Christ has done for us. May we live our life in a gospel posture of thankful worship for all that means and all these different things. And we ask that in Christ's name. Amen.